Hello, this is Scott Gordon. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hey, this is the biggest suitcase to ever play the game, Mike McKenna. This is Dale Weiss. Hi, this is Bob Clark. You listen to. And you're listening to. You're listening to. And you're listening to. You're listening to. Snow the goalie. 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 Je suis Ross Joy. In, uh, pro Twitter, uh, Joy on Broad, avec Monsieur Anthony Sanfilippo, à uh, Twitter, at Anthony Anthony. I think what's happening right at this moment is everyone listening to the podcast is checking to see if they're, uh, you know, the, 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 where they listen to their podcast to, if somehow they put on in a different language, because that was as flawless French as I've ever heard, Russ. Merci beaucoup, mes amis. <laughs> mon ami, mon ami, <laughs> le Québécois. Oh. I apologize in advance to uh, Elaine Vigneault, the Flyers' new coach, who I'm sure is listening to the only Flyers podcast, you know, the goalie. Um, I will, I guarantee, by the end of uh, next season, I will ask him a question in Québécois French at a press conference, and I will, I'll get under the skin of all the other writers. You should do it at a Canadiens game, Ooh. because there are the French reporters at that game, so nobody will get upset. I don't care if they get upset. Why would I <laughs> obviously, care? Look, obviously I not. To, You've already I, pissed off Paul Holmgren, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Did I? By calling uh, him the Night King. <laughs> did I? I didn't call him the Night King. I said that he is a, a white, white walker. walker. But I said he was a book white walker in that he was mysterious. He is cold. It's okay. He's just he's just not he's not the most, you know, outgoing, engaging guy. I had a couple people say to me uh, on Twitter and a couple friends say, man, you were kind of ruthless on him. I'm like, I don't think I was. I didn't think I was that unfair. And I want to go back and clarify something. The, the White Walker thing was meant as a joke, whatever. But I, I said that half the fan base won't be upset when he's gone. And I was actually wrong. I think more than half the fan base will be happy when he's gone. I'm not saying that I agree with it. I'm just saying that, like, if, if you go on to any kind of online forum, if you go on to Reddit, if you go on to um, podcast reviews, if you go on to comment sections on, you know, for Crossing Broad on Facebook, look at the responses that we get on Twitter. There are a lot of people who are still upset that Paul Holmgren's associated with the organization. I actually do not dislike Paul Holmgren. And, and one of the things that I didn't say on the last show that I want to get out there is... I think that from the standpoint of trying to compete every year, I think Paul Holmgren did a really good job. I will stand by the fact that the Flyers, when he left, were in a bit of a bad cap situation, which I think you and I were going to talk about when we were going to record like a week ago about the actual role that GMs have in, you know, in the money that's assigned or offered to players. Um, but like, I'll stand by those things. But I wasn't saying I agreed with the majority of the fan base's sentiment, but I, it's out there. I, I can't, I can't lie. I can't act like it doesn't exist. If it upset the man, then uh, you know I'm, I'm sorry. I guess uh, that it upset him, um, but I don't know. I don't know if that's what it was. I don't know if I really did upset him. You say it. I'll, I'll, I'll assume that I'm that you're right. 
I well, I have a different take completely on Paul Holmgren's tenure as general manager, but I'm not certain if that's why people are coming to uh, this edition of the podcast to listen to us uh, debate uh, an old argument. Okay, so let's talk about um, Monsieur Alain Vigneault. Vigneault, who was introduced to the Philadelphia media, not including yourself and I, because we were, uh, we were off doing our other jobs. I thought it was a pretty impressive uh, press conference, if I'm going to be honest with you. I don't. I try not to get swayed anymore by uh, by the way that that guys are introduced to the media. There were a few reoccurring themes that he hit on this, but uh, before we get into those, I just want to get your feeling because you've done this for much longer than I have, and you know you've gotten to know a lot of coaches, assistant coaches, players, and and the like. How did you feel after watching Elaine Vigneault's press conference? Um, the press conference doesn't mean anything to me. The press conferences, especially initial press conferences. You're pretty much getting, you know, the 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 PR spin, right? On every everything's hunky dory, everything's wonderful, and everybody's going to say something that's going to make you say, "Oh yeah, this is going to be great." So the press conference, in and of itself, it doesn't matter what buzzwords he used or what keywords he said. It doesn't. It really doesn't make a difference. The the thing about this signing as a coach, um, it, it tells me that the Flyers are going to have a different organization, a different team, um come September than than what they had at the end of the year. And I don't necessarily just mean, well, of course they are. Obviously, they've got to make some changes, right? Of course. But it's going to be a different kind of team. And it may not be what this fan base wants up front. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to fail because it could very well succeed. Elaine Vigneault has a good track record as a head coach. He's, he's been a good coach in this league. 16 years he's been a head coach in the NHL. Um, he's made two Stanley Cup finals. And uh, of all the coaches in NHL history who've taken two separate teams to the Stanley Cup Finals and has won as many games as Elaine Vigneault has, there's only been six, okay? He's one of only six coaches to do it, to have that many wins and be at the finals twice with two different, at least two different teams. He's the only coach who has not won a Stanley Cup of those six. Um, so, but but that, doesn't, that doesn't detract from him. He's a good coach. The whole, the whole th- theory that... Oh, he he develops young players. It, that I can completely debunk, okay? Because he does not develop young players. There have been, in the course of sixteen years, a couple young guys who were young when they started with Vino and actually became good players, but only a couple. There was he has never coached a team with to success that was a young team trying to take that next step. That's not what Elaine Vigneault does well. Elaine Vigneault does well with a uh, talented team and a veteran team with a couple of young guys sprinkled in. So when I look at that and I see what where the Flyers are right now, I have a feeling that they are going to have a little bit more of a veteran flavor next season than they've had this year than they've had in recent years, and I know I know the fans go crazy when a coach likes a, a veteran lineup, and you are one of them, but I think you're going to see a more veteran lineup next season, at least to start the year, because that's what will work with Vino. He does not, he does not do well with a lot of young guys. That's where the Rangers were at the end, and, and you saw how that went, right? That was probably his worst season as a coach. Um, 
and didn't wasn't going well, and that's why he was let go because he just didn't have that. He didn't connect in that way. You know, Vino's a little bit older. He's what fifty eight, going to be fifty nine. Um, he looks younger than that, but that, that's how old he is. He's a guy that his is his system is kind of a go 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 system. It's it's a good system. Um, they teams will for his teams forecheck the hell out of you. Um, but again, it's reliant on high end skill, uh, aggressiveness, and then good goaltending. Now the Flyers have a good young goalie, right? We we know this. Carter Hart is 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 in goal. Um, but when you look back, the reason Vigneault was successful is because he took over a Vancouver team when Roberto Luongo was 26 years old, I believe, or 27. He took over the Rangers when Henrik Lundqvist was 30. Um, he had established star goalies and said, all right, we're going we're gonna to lean on these guys and we're going to push the envelope. And they were exciting teams. They were good teams. Canucks had, I think he had eight 100-point seasons combined between the two teams, won the President's Trophy, got two teams to the finals. They're exciting but do we have the the Sedin twins on this team? Do not. No. Okay. Um, it doesn't doesn't quite equate there. And, and as much as we love Carter Hart, he's not quite Henrik Lundqvist um, just yet. I, I'm not certain that he's even Roberto Luongo just yet. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of time for that. But the, so there's going to be an, it's going to be interesting to see how Cliff Fletcher or Cliff. I did it again. That's his father. Chuck Fletcher, um, uh, how Chuck Fletcher puts this team together over the course of the next month and a half because I have a feeling you're going to see a little bit more of a veteran presence in this lineup than you you think you might. And you assume that I'm going to be upset about that if I if I took your uh, your initial well, comment? I'll be I'll be surprised right if you're not. I'll be surprised if you're not. Hmm. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Well, only because, let me, only because let me, all the conversations me, we've had, Russ, me, is that you've... Let me be clear you know, about something. Go ahead. I have no problem with veteran players, if the veteran players lead to a winning team, right? And I think we saw enough years of this team being mired in mediocrity and really not having much of a shot to advance, relying on a lot of veteran players, that, like, you have to understand that, like, I'm jaded because of it. Now, if you're going to go out and actually get good veteran players, if you're going to parlay a very deep minor league system... And a lot of good, young, attractive assets on the on the you know Flyers roster, in order to get guys who make you a legitimate contender for the Stanley Cup, not just for the division, not just for the East, but for the Stanley Cup. Then yes, I'm all in on it. I have no problem with it. You want to deplete the depth that Ron Hextall you know essentially put in, in place with uh, Chris Pryor? By all means, do it, but only if it means you're going to win a Stanley Cup. If it's going to be to go out and get some middling guys that like Elaine Vigneault wants to use. In you know, I, I you know, an overextended effort to get them uh, uh, more minutes than they probably would on any other team. Then no, I'm not here for that. I've I've seen that story. I've I've watched that play out with Dave Haxtell. There is a slight worry that Vigneault, because of some of of uh, the decisions that he's made in the past, could end up being another Dave Haxtell with this team. Insofar as an over reliance on vets and an unwillingness to experiment or to rely on or allow younger players. To, to get their, their knocks as they go and to develop. This team, as it's currently constructed, is not a team that's a top three team in the Eastern Conference. It doesn't mean that they can't make the playoffs next year. They're going to retool. They're going to go out and, and make some signings, we assume. Um, but look, ultimately, I think 
As long as Vino's is able to learn from past mistakes and continue to be a successful coach, implement a style that should play well in this city, I'm all in on it. I have no problem with this team becoming a more veteran-laden um, team. It just has to be with the ultimate goal and the realistic chance of winning a Stanley Cup. Well, the realistic chance of winning a Stanley Cup is just getting the damn playoffs. I mean, we're seeing that this year. The top three seeds in the West are already gone. Uh, the number one overall seed from the East is gone. The number two overall seed from the East has been forced to a Game 7 by Carolina. Uh, the Penguins have been were swept. I mean, it, 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 there's a real chance that the final eight teams that are left here are se- seven of the f- bottom 16 seeds going into the playoffs. So just get in and you have a shot, yep. right? Yep. So, I mean, when you say to try and win a Stanley Cup anymore, the, the parity in this league is such that just get in and you have a shot. And so that's what's, that's what's so damning about, you know, when you look at what the Flyers did this year, for example – you sit there and say, geez, if the Flyers could have gotten in, could they have done? I mean, I don't know if they could have beaten Tampa the way Columbus beat Tampa, but could they have done what Carolina's doing with Washington? Yeah. <laughs> could they have beaten Pittsburgh? Yeah. You know, I mean, they could have. And then all of a sudden we're talking about a run. And you say, holy cow, right? I mean, this team that didn't make the playoffs, that lost its last five in a row and finished whatever they finished, 12, 14 points out of the playoff spot, 16 points out of the playoff, whatever it ended up being. I mean, this team this year had, if they had a couple things go different earlier in the season, could have been, could, we could be sitting here talking about a playoff run right now instead of being 16 points out and picking 11th in the draft in June and having a new coach and uh, taking a new approach to roster construction. I mean, that's, the, that's the, how fine the line is in the NHL. So it's a lot of reasons why I think that you see everywhere in the league that coaches, for the most part, want more reliable veteran depth players as opposed to developing young players at the NHL level because they know the, the, the margin of error is so slim and so, and so, it's so small that anybody can win once you get to the tournament. So get there. Worry about, worry about development later. Just get there. And I think that, that was, that's the thing that so many fans lose sight of because, oh, well, we want to see these guys develop and it's going to take five, six years and that's okay and then we'll be okay and you know down the road. Not in the NHL, man. Not in the NHL. You get in and you have a shot and that's it. I mean, who would have expected the St. Louis Blues who were in last place right around the same time the Flyers were, okay, to be – Advancing to the second round of the playoffs. The Dallas Stars, who, whose owner publicly berated his two best players earlier in the season. And it worked. And to get Well, it, it, it worked to the point that they got in. They did. I mean, but they didn't, they didn't necessarily play great after that. I mean, they were, don't get me wrong. Jamie Benn has been excellent in these playoffs, okay? And Sagan has been good in these playoffs. But after that whole fiasco with the owner, I mean, it didn't. It wasn't like they just suddenly came out and took off. I mean, they didn't. Um, so, but but nevertheless, here you go. I mean, here's that team that's in the Colorado Avalanche are into the second round. Yep. I mean, that Western Conference. We said it was going to be crazy. No one expected it to be this crazy. It, it, I mean, it really is the wild, wild west. It, it's, and it's, San Jose, it's insane. you know, and you want to talk about veteran players who could definitely contribute next season. Eric Carlson has to be wondering if. Uh, 
if Vegas is able to win in Game 7, and he's uh, knocked out in the first round, you've got to think that for as much positivity as there was coming out of the San Jose camp about their thoughts that he might re-sign there, if they're out in the first round, I've got to think that there's a chance that he might look to move on elsewhere, right? Like, it, it has to open that door maybe a little bit further than it... Um, it's got to open that door a little bit further than, than maybe had been expected at the end of the regular season. And the Flyers, especially with Vigneault, with knowing the kind of system that he's going to run, it would appear that the Flyers maybe are a bigger contender to sign Eric Carlson than we thought even, you know, a month ago. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that, that I think that he's going to be a guy that they look at. Um, but there's going to be more. I mean, I think, I think that there's def- there is definitely one uh, veteran defenseman coming here. Definitely one. I would not be surprised if it's two now. Go on. With, with, with Vino. Well, I don't know. I'm not saying that it's definitely going to be one particular guy. What I'm saying is, is I think that there's definitely one veteran defenseman coming to the Flyers. Whoever that is is going to be is going to be here, but I would not be surprised if now we get two, which is which is strange because you have oh, we have all these young defensemen. I think somebody's going to be on the move. And and who that is, I mean, I mean we've been saying, you know, whatever for Goss to spare for a while, but I I <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if somebody else goes. I I really wouldn't at this juncture. Like the the hiring of Vino changes my f- feeling on where the flyers are looking um and and that's you know i look around and i sit there and say okay you know or maybe you go after eric carlson but do you also go after anton strawman who's an unrestricted free agent was on tampa right be a guy that would fit nicely here i mean he's 32 maybe you sign him to a three-year deal you know and, and you give him you know five five and a half six somewhere in that vicinity you know I think that that's a guy that could also fit in here and and be a second pair solid defenseman for this team. Do you trade for somebody who's got longer term, who someone's looking to get out from under a contract? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's there's so much that can happen now. And I think it ch- it changes. And I I'll tell you another thing to look at. I would look at players who thrived under uh under Vino in recent seasons with the Rangers. I'll give you an example. I look at a guy like Matt Zuccarello. Okay, now here's here's an interesting thing with Zuccarello. When he was traded to the Rangers, the deal um, for him to go there was uh, a second-round pick in 2019 from Dallas to the Rangers and a third-round pick in 2020. The second-rounder becomes a first-rounder if Dallas gets to the Western Conference Finals. The third rounder becomes a first rounder if Dallas re-signs Zuccarello. So now the question is, Dallas wins this next round. Are the Stars willing to re-sign Zuccarello and give up two first round picks to the Rangers? One is definitely going. Are they willing to give up a second first round pick for Matt Zuccarello? Based on where they were in the standings, you would think no. Probably not. But Unless they reach the – if they get to the final – that's a whole different. Then you round, run it right? back next year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a different thing, right? But if let's say they win, let's say they win the next round and lose in the Western Conference Finals, they don't reach the Stanley Cup Final, but they get to the Conference Final. Are they willing to give up two first round picks to keep Matt Zuccarello? I'm not certain that they do. And so there's a guy that would then be a free agent that I think you know would fit nicely on the wing here. A guy Vino's 
you know, high on, has always liked as a player there. Um, so, so there's a guy that I think, you know, you look at that and say, well, that would be a nice addition, a veteran player um, that could, uh, that could fit with, you know, what Vino is trying to do as a coach. Another guy is, um, is Kevin Hayes, uh, who got traded to the Winnipeg Jets this year. And, and I think that he's another guy who flourished underneath um, Vino, actually kind of came into – I want to talk about a, a younger player who maybe kind of, you know, developed into a, a decent player um, uh, under Vino. I mean, he's you – now what is he, 26? I guess he'll be 20 – excuse me, be 27. Um, he's an unrestricted free agent. And, you know, didn't pan out. Obviously, Winnipeg loses in the first round, so he's going to be a UFA. Is he a guy that you sit there and say, there's, a, there's that second-slash-third-line center that would look really nice with the Flyers next year? Um, he had, you know what, he had 19 goals and uh, 36 assists this year for 55 points uh, between the Rangers and the Jets. Is that a guy that would, would make sense now? Yeah, maybe. You know what I'm saying? Like, there you go. There's another. There's another name that we would, weren't even talking about before, but now we look at it and say, now the Vino's here. Maybe he fits. Maybe he fits the mold, and not just because Vino's coached him and knows him, but because it's a guy who who played well in his system, and is an unrestricted free agent and fills a need that that you have on your roster. So now things kind of, I, I think it's evolving a little bit. By bringing in Vino, which to which I should clarify, was not their first choice. Go Probably, on. Probably. Well, it, well, it, okay. That's not a big surprise, right? They wanted Joel Quenville. Quenville was their first choice. Um, Anthony, and, they uh, they offered the man a contract, and he turned <laughs> them down. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I don't think it ever got to that point. Anthony, they hired him. They fired Dave Haxtell because they hired Joel Quenville. Do yeah, you I, not remember this? I know, I know, I know. It's, and I, I've gotten the whole story on where that came from, and I, I can't say it publicly, but um, yeah, it was it was total jumping the gun <laughs> there, right? Obviously, so um, so yeah. So I mean, Joel Quenville was their first choice, but he indicated to them in I think it was late March that he was not going to come to Philadelphia. So then it's like, okay, well, let's see. Well, who's next? So I think they wanted to wait till the end of the season to see what happened in Minnesota because Chuck hired Bruce Boudreaux in Minnesota. There was a lot of talk that Boudreaux might be let go. And then word came out because they got a new GM out there and he might want his own guy. And then word came out that they were going to keep Boudreaux. Okay, so didn't have an opportunity to speak to Bruce, who was you know well-respected, well-liked guy around the league. Chuck hired him. Okay, great. Let's move on from there. They talked to Dave Tippett. Before they talked to Elaine Vino, they talked to Dave Tippett, former coach of the Dallas Stars and the Phoenix or Arizona Coyotes, who is now an advisor to the new Seattle franchise, and didn't really have an interest in getting back to coaching just yet. He kind of wants to be part of, you know, that what's happening in Seattle and putting that team together. So he says no. Um, I'm not certain that they where they are were with McClellan, Todd McClellan. I. I know McClellan wanted this. I know he talked to Buffalo, um, but he really wanted to stay out west, and he signed with the L.A., 
And that's kind of where, you know, he wanted to be, he was in San Jose, he was in Edmonton, he just likes the West, it, whatever it is, he just likes coaching out there. So staying in L.A. Is, was not a surprise. I, I wrote that before he signed there, that that was probably what was going to happen. So I, I don't necessarily know if he was on the pecking order somewhere for the Flyers, but you had to consider him. So then it gets to Vino. So now we're, we're now four or five coaches down the list. That doesn't necessarily mean that this was, you know, uh, oh, my God, we're settling for Elaine Vino. Elaine Vino is a good coach. You're not, you're not settling for anything. It's just that this wasn't the target. So now that it is, now that it, now that it, it became the target and they signed him and signed him to a five-year, $25 million contract. So you're giving, giving the guy a lot of money. That's a lot of money for an NHL coach. That means that you're going to commit to his style and his system. So you're gonna, he's going to want his kind of players. So it changes the, the outlook of what the Flyers are going to do this summer. Slightly. Same positions are of need, but the kind of player maybe changes. And I think that that's why you're going to see them go and look at players that maybe played for, for him in New York. So let me get back to one of the things that you just said about targets. That he wasn't the first target. We've talked so much. We've talked at length on both this show and on the Press Row show, which feels like forever ago, um, about the idea that Comcast Spectacore's CEO and chairman, Dave Scott, wanted a big name. And Vino represents a big name. I don't, I don't think that Tippett would have been necessarily the biggest name that you could have brought in, right? He wasn't somebody that the casual fan was going to recognize. Now, in fairness, Vino's not exactly somebody that your typical 4 for 4 or 3 for 3 Philadelphia fan is going to know. Um, but when you find out that he was the Rangers coach, then it's like, okay, well, I, I at least know that, that the Rangers play in New York City. Are we getting a retread? Like, from the casual fan, that, that would be the first thing that would be asked. And then you start to look at his resume, and you go, all right, two different teams to the Stanley Cup Finals. Like, that's exciting. Do you think that maybe some of the other guys that were interviewed, like the Tippets of the world... Was that something where that was Chuck Fletcher wanting to do his due diligence and try to make the case to the owner that these guys were worth interviewing, but ultimately he knew that he needed to go out and get a big name, and that's ultimately why they ended up on Vino? Is it a situation where Fletcher didn't want the optics of it, or maybe even Comcast didn't want the optics of it to look like they didn't do their due diligence and just went out and got the, the biggest name they possibly could that was available on the uh, free agent coaching market? No, I don't think they did their due diligence at all, to be honest with you. I think that Dave Tippett and Elaine Vigneault kind of are on the same plane. Vigneault's a little bit more successful historically, um, but Tippett had some really good seasons with, with uh, the Stars and with uh, the Coyotes. Um, he also had to endure coaching the Coyotes with it when they had no owner and no money to support the team and the franchise and was just kind of just a guy that was there for several years. So I can see why maybe he soured on coaching a little bit uh, when he was thrown in that thrust into that situation. But if they were doing their due diligence, um, they would have interviewed Sheldon Keefe, who's a hot name, uh, head coach of the Toronto Marlies AHL in the uh, Maple Leaf system, uh, won the Calder Cup with them a year ago. A lot of people think that he's the next generation, you know, he's a former player, next generation of a good coach. Uh, young coach in the NHL um, or even Scott Sandlin who won back-to-back uh, uh, NCAA championships uh, with Minnesota Duluth and I know oh we just did a college coach with Dave Haxtell but there's a difference when San- Sandlin's won three national championships okay it's a little bit different again a guy with playing experience at the NHL level these guys weren't even discussed 
So that tells me that the directive came down from above that we need a, a recognizable name as a coach. And so when you see them talking to Dave Tippett and then eventually hiring Elaine Vigneault, while they're not household names like Joel Quenville is because neither of them have won a Stanley Cup, you don't have very many three-time Stanley Cup winners floating out there. Um, so you go for the next level guy that people who are you know smart hockey people will recognize and say, oh yeah, good coach. And they did that. They, they, they hired one of those guys. So good on the Flyers for doing that. But again, they could have gone in a different direction. And I think that if they went in a different direction, it would have been more indicative of them staying with a lot of what they have as opposed to let's bring a guy in here and start playing it his way and we're going to need to get players to fit his, to fit his system. That's why I think there's going to be a change. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of the guys who, uh, who very likely could be heading out. Um, we've talked uh, at length about Shane Gostisbehere, his future on this team. The, the name that you brought up the last time that was intriguing was Travis Konechny. Um, I think that from our conversation with Paul Holmgren, I think with our conversation with, uh, with Bobby Clark, there is a feeling within the, the higher end of management with this team that changes need to be made and that it's going to, to some extent, be painful for fans to see guys that you know, have been well thought of and, and highly regarded. Um, there, We're going to start to see some of these guys get sent, sent away for veteran contributors to the team. Um, when you brought up earlier the idea of bringing in Strawman, you know, possibly in conjunction with a an Eric Carlson signing or maybe in lieu of an Eric Carlson signing and, and retooling, you had said, you know, do the Flyers then consider going and, and trading away, um, you know, younger guys in an effort to clear up spaces for those guys. I have to wonder, it feels like this team on the front end is lacking so much in terms of forward um, forwards who can actually score on this team. Guys that aren't just create, considered to be creative players who get their, their teammates in position to finish, but ultimately can't really do the job themselves. Um, it feels like we don't have anybody right now at the NHL level who can be a 40-goal-a-year scorer. Sean Couturier has eclipsed 30. We know that Claude Giroux had the ability at some point in his career to be a goal scorer. We know that Jake Voracek on a good year is going to be like, what, an 80-ish point player? You have to think somewhere around 30 and 50 could be his ceiling probably at this point in his career. But you don't have a, a guy who pushes the envelope. You don't have a guy who uh, a team's defense has to stack up against and, and try to cheat on the way that, you know, you have to cheat for an Alex Ovechkin. I'm obviously not saying that there's anybody in the Flyers pipeline who should represent anything like an Ovechkin, but, like, you don't have a sniper. You don't have a Jeff Carter on this team. At, at what point do the Flyers start to think that, you know, parting with some of their young defensemen makes sense if they know that they're going to go out and make a splash in free agency? Say it's Carlson. Say it's Strawman. Say it's a combination of the two. Say it's, you know, really pursuing someone in a trade. Um, that's going to solidify the top four defensemen on this team. At what point do you think that we start to consider, or the Flyers start to consider trading guys like Travis Sanheim, who I, I would not want to see them trade, but if you're bringing in Eric Carlson, like, you know, it, it is an upgrade, maybe not for the long term. I don't know about Carlson's long-term health, but like, do you really have to start considering the the idea of trading some of these young defensemen in an effort to fortify the top six forwards on this team? 
Yes. I think so too. I, I just think that that's where it's going to hurt because I don't know uh, what, I, I don't know what, what Konechny gets you on the open market. Like, I don't know what Oscar Lindblom gets you on the open market. I don't, you know uh, what I mean? Like, I don't, I, don't I wouldn't, I wouldn't move on from, I wouldn't move on from, from Lindblom just yet. I think that there's something interesting there. We'll I'm, see. Yeah, I'm not I advocating mean, that. I'm just saying like, I don't, I don't think that you get much from trading any of your forwards that aren't named Giroux or Voracek. Well, so I, and you're not going to trade Couturier. He's the future captain of this team like that. Yeah. That would be stupid. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm not a hundred percent sure where. Well, Konechny is is a guy that to me, even though you say you wouldn't trade from from your forward depth, but he doesn't really have a, a role. You know what I'm saying? Like you look at you look at Jeru Katorie Voracek. You look at you expect Nolan Patrick to be more. I mean that's the that's he's a key piece to this whole thing right um and and you know jvr is a guy if you're not if you're not trading jvr because he's got a tough contract to move well he's a guy that you expect to get between 30 and 35 goals every year so you know where does Konechny really really fit he's not a third line winger and i'm not certain that he fits nicely enough i mean even though he had some success playing with Giroux and couturier I'm not certain that he fits nicely enough there as a long-term answer. So he's one of those guys where, yeah, you, he's young and you don't want to move on from him. You like him a lot, um, but it, it wouldn't kill you to move him for something else. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Um, and so that's the that's the one forward who I think can bring you a little bit of value. Um, but the defenseman being young um, and having some success at the NHL level certainly can bring you value. Um and I think Gostas Bear's got that. I think he's got value because of because of his offensive ability. Um, you know, and 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 the reason I mentioned it's interesting. I mentioned Strawman, who's free agent from from Tampa. Let's not forget he also played for Elaine Vigneault in New York uh, the year that they went to the Cup final. Um, as a matter of fact, I think he he was there both times, both with the Cup final uh, and the Conference final. Um, so again, a guy that that Vino is familiar with knows how to play in that system and is, you know, solid second pair veteran defensive guy. So look, I think that you can replace what you have and, and get better. And and that's not a, that's not knocking the young players. It's not saying that they stink or anything like that. They don't, they certainly have value, but if you need to improve the team, you have to give up something to get something then you need to give up some value, but you can replace that with some free agents that can that are available and then trade for improvements, knowing you have a ton of draft picks, knowing you have the you know, what a lot of people say is the second best prospect pool in the NHL. Um, you you can do these things and trade from the NHL level and still not, you know, make your cupboard be bare and improve the team enough to make the jump from being you know, uh, just outside the playoffs to being a playoff team and having a chance to win like a lot of these teams are doing this year. Now, we've talked about Gostasper being somebody who could be traded. Is there any thought that now, because of the system that Vino is going to run, that somebody like Gostasper, the style that he plays, being an offensive-minded defenseman, is it possible that he becomes invaluable and, and they they now shut down the possibility of trading him be, because of what he could do in Vino's system? Okay. Um, that's a good question. 
um, because Vino does play a more up-tempo style. Um, I just think that there's been, I think Chuck has seen enough of Shane Goss despair to know that he would bring you something of value in return. And teams are, you know, a lot of times teams when they're looking to, you know, at this time of year, well, what's coming in June, um, when they're looking to make a trade and if they're going to trade something of value off their roster, they don't necessarily want future um, unless they're in a complete rebuild, they're like an Ottawa kind of team, and they might want future. But teams that are willing to move a veteran player are looking for a younger player that they can plug in now and play at the NHL level. So I think if you're going to go out and trade for a veteran center, veteran winger, you know who's going to make this team a, a sniper like you've been, been asking for, and if it takes Shane Gosses Bear to get that done, then you make that deal. Okay. Because you can replace Shane Gostas Bear. You have guys in place. I mean, Travis Sanheim can man the point on the power play. Um, you know, he's, he, he and Provorov are your top two. Um, you still got Gudis. You're going to bring in another veteran guy. And then you have some younger guys that you consider, you know, for the third pair. Phil Myers um, looked good at the end Myers, of the season. Yeah. Right. Myers and, 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 um, you know, even like a guy like uh, Haig and, and Sam Moran and Mark Friedman. So you still got guys there that could play those fifth, sixth defenseman roles, right? So, uh, you know, it it doesn't hurt you to try. You still got Andrew McDonald for one more year. Uh, it doesn't hurt you to try to, to move Gostas Bear to get something of value to help the team improve because you can you can replace him easier than you could replace say a, a Konechny or another forward right so I think that that's I think that's why we keep saying that this is where the Flyers are going to go because it makes a lot of sense okay all right no I, I think that makes sense um now let me spin this again I'm going to bring up an idea to you that I brought up months ago just as a conceptual thing not as a me advocating for it thing if the Flyers are to go out let's say they get Eric Carlson because that's now my my new favorite thing, other than restricted free agents. Hey, Casper, happening. I got my jersey already. Um, is there a potential that Ivan Provorov is moved? Let me set the context for this before people shut the podcast off and before your clock continues to chime on the hour. <laughs> they they already they wait. Already we used shut to do this. Hold on. We used to do this, didn't we? We used to do yes. a, a. Hold on. Let's let's do a, a brief quasi moment of silence for Anthony's clock. Happy. That was beautiful. All right. So let me set the context. <laughs> Ivan Provorov is a restricted free agent. We know that there there had been word that had leaked out in the past that Provorov's agent was looking for $10 million a year, which is absolutely absurd. We know that Ivan Provorov had a very rough start to his season. We know that the middle part of his season, he started to turn it around. When Rick Wilson was hired, uh, it, it pretty much coincided with the resurgence of Provorov. We do know that at the end of the season, he still had some struggles that we hadn't expected him to have. If the Flyers, if Chuck Fletcher, as the second general manager who's overseen the potential re-signing of, of Ivan Provorov, gets the feeling that they are a mile apart, is it in any way likely that Provorov is moved? 
prior to uh, the restricted free agency, um, uh, the, like the date that restricted free agents can be signed. Because I understand that, you know, other teams could theoretically try to poach him. They, they might have to offer something that's going to cost them multiple first-round picks. Like, we've had this, this talk about, do the Flyers go out and make a big splash, knowing that it's going to cost them trade assets? I would expect that a, a team might consider going after Provorov if they know that there is a, a massive gap between where the Flyers stand and where Provorov and his agent are. Is there a possibility in any way that the Flyers consider trading Provorov if they know they're going to go out and get a guy like Eric Carlson who could replace him as the top defenseman on the team? I don't think so. Okay, I don't. I really don't. And it's a, I, I see why you're asking the question, but I, they rely on him so so much. Um, and even when he was struggling, he was the kind of guy. So here's the difference between Provorov and Gostaspair, for example, as you saw at the end of the season. When Provorov was struggling, they kept throwing him out there. Go play thirty minutes a night, kid. Figure it out. Right, yep. get it, get get back to what you're able to do. When Gostisbehere struggles, he gets pulled off the top power play. He gets benched in overtime at three on three. He gets a healthy scratch uh, late in the season. Big difference on how they handle the two of them, correct? So I think one, that's that's an, uh, a clue to how they view the, the two of them moving forward. I think that they still view Ivan Provorov as a centerpiece of their core moving forward and i think that they look at shane goss's bear as expendable and and i think that that's the therein lies the difference and you've i think they've already shown us that um now i know that there was talk of you know goss's bear wanting 10 million it, it's crazy it's crazy for his age he's not good enough to get it i i, I think ivan provrov right now could probably get at age 21 could probably earn himself five years 25 27 million and then worry about getting the big money when he hits unrestricted free agency at age 26 and i think that's what he should he should settle for that and just take that and be happy with it it's a it's a good salary it's a fair salary it's it's what he deserves um but if he you know if he and his agent think that they can hold out for more good luck to him He's not. They're not going to let him go. The Flyers, even if somebody were to, and I don't think anybody would offer sheet uh, Provorov because the Flyers have a ton of cap space, right? So I don't think it's going to happen. But even if they did, the Flyers would match it. If it was, ten, what if if it were ten million a year? A team gets desperate. They know that he could be. They believe who's that, got that. I'm just saying that he could. Who's got that kind of money? Who's got the? Do here's I, the do thing. Do I need to go cap geek now? Hold on. Go well, ahead. So, so that's the question. Who's got that kind of money? To throw, who's a who thinks that they are a one young defenseman away from being a Stanley Cup contender? Because you got to remember, you're going to be giving up five first round picks for ten million dollars a year. Who who's got that kind of money to throw to throw at Ivan Provorov? I don't think any ten point two. It's not four. No, it's that's it's four first. It's what four first round picks? The threshold I think is ten point four three nine five million. I could be wrong. But if it's say it's on the low end of ten million, I'm pretty sure that it's the lower package. I'll also look that up. I'm looking for okay. for breakdowns. So, Car- Carolina's got a ton of cap space, but they got a bunch of young, good young defensemen already. It's not going to be them, right? The Devils, they're not going to do it. Colorado, I, I don't think so. I, you know, they got a bunch of young stars themselves already that they got to worry about re-signing. Ottawa's not going to do it. I, Islanders, I, I don't. Again, I don't see it. I don't think that they would. 
uh, and in Vancouver. No, I mean that's there. Those are the teams in Mont- Montreal. Those are the teams that have at least eight million dollars in cap space currently. I I don't see it happening. I just don't. I I don't think. I mean, there's maybe a couple teams in there. Maybe Montreal. Maybe the Islanders. But I don't. I don't see it. I don't see either team doing it. And and I think the Flyers would match it in either case. Yeah, I'm just. So. I'm looking right now. It, it looks like it's Colorado, Ottawa, Jersey, Islanders, and then Flyers. In terms of, yeah. of the most estimated cap. Now, let, let me also kind of build this part of it in. I I don't necessarily know if your argument of a team that's only one young defenseman away from being a contender is necessarily accurate in the way that I'm looking at it. If you're a team that is in the middle of a rebuild, say that you're in year two of what might be a four-year rebuild, but you know that you want Ivan Provorov to be a foundational piece of whatever it is that you're building. I'm not sure that we can discount those teams either. Like I'm absolutely, I'm, you have to, you have to discount them. Why? The reason you have to discount oh, because them because he won't sign the sheet. Well, a that, that's number one. Number number two, you have to discount them because if they're rebuilding, they can't afford to give up four first round picks for the next four years. How are they building? What are they building with? <laughs> like you, you can't. They just you don't have it. It's not there. So that's why you discount it. I, I like I don't think it's a realistic thing, Ross. I just don't. I just. I, you know, I think that there there could be some friction between the Flyers and Provorov as far as getting the contract done. I think that's a legitimate possibility, but I don't think any I don't think that there's any team that would offer him a ten million dollar contract because the they know the Flyers would likely match it if they had to. Um, and secondly, I, you know, I'm not certain that anybody really thinks he's worth ten million dollars right now. I mean. What, what kind of what kind of season did he have that you sit there and say, oh yeah, let's give up four first round picks and fifty million dollars in the next five years to sign Ivan Provorov? I think it just I, depends on if you fundamentally believe that the season that he had, the up and down season that he had, is indicative of the player you're going to get, or if you believe that what we saw from him last year and what we projected forward for him based on last year is what you really do look at as an organization and decide that that is the real Ivan Provorov. Again, I'm not saying that they should consider it. I'm not saying that any team should consider offer sheeting him. I'm not saying that the Flyers should consider trading him. I'm merely putting out the possibility that if they know they're going to go out and acquire at least one top pair defenseman, if not, you know, two, I don't know, top three-ish defensemen, top four defensemen on a team, do they consider it? I'm not saying they should. If Provorov were traded for a legitimate top top line forward as part of a package i don't know i i don't know if you can if you can say no now i don't know what team is going to want to offer up a young transcendent level uh you know top line forward in exchange for it you know what could be considered a foundational defenseman it probably won't happen i couldn't even list a team right now that i think has somebody that that they would be willing to part with in that kind of scenario but I'm guessing that would be the only way that the Flyers would consider it, right? Like it, it has to be somebody who is that good on the offensive side that like you're you're cashing in your your most valuable chip on the defensive side in order to try to get somebody that you think is gonna, you know, grow with the Sean Couturiers of the world and lead this team into like the next eight, ten years, right? I, I you know, I'm talking myself out of this even being a, a, a hypothetical that has any kind of legs. Good. I'm glad you are. Well, I'm glad I am too. But I, I, you know, I think it'd be doing a disservice if we don't at least acknowledge the possibility. Okay. I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. Um, 
I want to get back to Elaine Vigneault for a second. Um, a, a few things that stood out from his press conference that I think are kind of worth mentioning. So he said that there were three things that he was looking for uh, that he found in the Flyers. He wanted an opportunity to win short term for a Stanley Cup. It was one of the first things he said, which I thought was interesting because it, it definitely signals that they're not part of a youth movement here. Um, he said that he wanted the possibility to work with a GM that shares the same ideas in building a winner, building a hockey culture, and developing players, and he thought that he got that in Chuck Fletcher. And the last thing is he wanted a first-class organization, which was interesting because, you know, you and I talked about the fact that, you know, the the kind of changes that have been happening much higher up and on the business side of things with the Flyers um, might indicate that there is a culture change that is happening or being implemented here by Comcast, um, you know, in, in the... Uh, somewhat immediate years after the passing of Ed Snyder. So I thought that was interesting, although any coach is going to say that, that they think their organization is is first class, so I, I don't know. Um, and then he also uh, talked about, you know, a few fundamental concepts about structure and a, about the way that he needs to communicate and that his staff will communicate with players what their individual role is and then what the macro concept images of where they fit into the, to the team as a whole. And I thought the fact that he kept kind of going back to the well on – his clear communication, his staff's clear communication with players on what the expectations are, and establishing a team identity. It just felt like there was a lot. He he kept coming back to those ideas and player responsibility time and time again, and I felt like in a in a way that kind of hit on some of the things that that players were fans of with what Scott Gordon did with talking about their individual games and then how they fit within the system. Um, but you know there there is still that that looming concern that based on some of his track record in the past. That maybe, you know, he's not the most communicative of guys. He's not somebody who comes in here with the idea of being a an, an open-minded coach who has an open-door policy with his players. He's He's been described by many to be more of a, a headstrong guy who implements what he wants and tells players exactly what he wants. And there's not a whole lot of wiggle room and there's not a lot of back and forth with his players. I don't know if any of those things stood out to you, but they did to me. Um, no, <laughs> I hate to, I hate to burst your bubble there because I, again, I think that, you know, the only thing that maybe is when you say, you know, a, a short term chance to win a Stanley cup, I, 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 that one's the only one that maybe kind of, I think colors the same thing that I was trying to say earlier that, you know, they're, they're if they're going to compete, they need, they need to be a little bit more of, of a, uh, of an experienced team. Um, than what they currently are. So that's the only one. Other than that, it again, it was just it's like any press conference. It's like the Bryce Harper press conference for the Phillies, like where he said all the right things, and you know, and everybody got excited. It to me, if it's you know, whenever you hire a new, you ever sign a star player, or hire a new coach, or hire a new GM, they're they're always going to say the things that you want to hear. Um. And that's smart public relations wise, right? So, you know, what Elaine Vigneault says in April doesn't really impress me. It's what he does in, you know, all summer and then in the training camp to get them off to get them off to. Can you imagine? Could you imagine a good start to a season uh, come October, November? Uh, maybe be a winning team for once in the first two months of the season. Um, I know that they haven't done that in a while. Uh, so that, like, to me, that's when I really care with what Elaine Vigneault has to say. Until then, it's fine. <laughs> All right, so he, so here's a, a question that we were asked uh, by Bill Leonard at Major 78. He said uh, he wanted to hear about coaches and asked, does Rick Wilson stay? Who goes? 
You have to think I, that that Vino. It felt like between his answer and Chuck Fletcher's answer, it sounds like Vino's been hired with the idea that he can fill out the staff however he sees fit. I don't think Vino accepts this job if he's told that like Ian Laperriere needs to stay on the staff. Now Rick Wilson is a very respected coach. What are your thoughts on on what he's going to do here? Well, I, I think, in all honesty, I think it might be up to Rick Wilson more so than than Elaine Vino, um, because of his experience, because of what he's done with defensive coaches. I mean, when you look at Vino, he's had different coaches everywhere he's been. He, he didn't really have any other than the. Um, he had one uh, uh, coach who um, the name I'm blanking on the name right now, but I will find it. Um, who was his assistant with the Rangers, I believe, who was the video coach um, with the uh, Vancouver Canucks um, when Vino was coach. But other than that, like he really didn't. He he brought in Lindy Ruff um, to be a defensive coach with the Rangers, but it, I mean, and and Ruff is still there, but. Um, Vino only had him only was only with him for one season so like I don't think that there's any like real tie into that there um the the one guy that uh that I'm thinking of is um Scott Arneal no not Scott Arneal that's wrong <laughs> I, I lied about Scott Arneal um Scott Arneal was an assistant coach with the Rangers too uh it was a head coach with the uh, Daryl Williams that's who it was Daryl Williams was a about guys uh, with the last name William uh with uh with W's to start their names huh yeah, Daryl Williams um, was a, a video coach with the Vancouver Canucks, um, and then left with the, left the Canucks and went with Vino to the Rangers, where he was an assistant. Um, and and he he left when Vino left, so uh, and he's currently coaching in the ECHL. So I would assume that that's maybe a guy who spent what, 10 years, 11 years with Elaine Vino in two different cities that he might want to try and bring in in some capacity. Um, but really, that's the only one. Outside of that, I wouldn't be surprised if the Flyers looked at it and said, we'd like to keep Rick Wilson as our defensive-minded coach, our defensive coach. And Daryl Williams uh, comes in as an assistant coach. Um, and that's and that's it. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe you go one more. I know some. I know the Flyers had three assistants. This whole thing with having three assistants is kind of on the bench. It's kind of a new thing in the NHL. So maybe there's one more. I don't know. We'll see. But I don't know. Assistant coaches to me, they're you know they're good guys. They're they all know what they're kind of doing a little bit. I mean, you know, you're gonna everybody was loving ripping Ian LaPerriere, but. I give the guy credit because as bad as that penalty kill was for as long time as it was, he figured it out, right? I mean, they were they were strong. Was it him? The, was it Lapierre who ultimately figured it out? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what he coaches. I mean, well, who else? Who else could have? I mean, they changed. They made changes. They were more aggressive. Um, they were preventing teams from setting up. I mean that was that was the whole thing. That's what they switched. That was the switch that was made. It wasn't like they he he created this brand new, you know, system to to stop power plays. He he just said, listen, you know, we struggle when we once we're once the team's set up in the zone, so let's not let them set up. That's what he came up with, and it, and it worked. And they became a pretty. I mean, they were a top end penalty kill team for the last fifty fifty five games of the season. That's pretty darn good. Now it's not a full year. It's only 55 games. It may not be enough to bring him back, but and that's fine. 
you know, you can go and get another coach, but yeah, if Ian LaPerriere does stay, it's not the end of the world because he's just an assistant coach. It's not, it's not a, it's not a big deal, you know. How many of the assistants do you actually expect to be back? Again, I don't know. One, maybe two. Okay. I mean, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's just a. It's just a talking point. All that is. It's just a story for. It's a for the writers. We have to, to write we, about, These are right? talking points. But 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 again, does it matter? I don't. I don't think it does because it's all going to come down to the. It's all anything that goes wrong is going to be pointed at Vino. It doesn't matter who his assistants are. You know, it's like in baseball. If pitching is bad, are they going to blame the pitching coach or do they blame the manager? They blame the manager. Yeah, pitching coach might have something to do with it, but they blame the manager. Same thing. It doesn't matter who the assistants are in any sport. Really, it doesn't matter who the assistants are. Uh, you know, unless somebody's like really stands out as like really good at something, and word starts spreading around the league, like oh my god, this guy's really good at that, and then they get a chance to be a head coach somewhere else. Fine, but for the most part, assistant coaches are assistant coaches. They're, that's all they are. So. Um, here was a question from Twitter. Uh, I, I don't, was there anything else you wanted to hit on with Vigno? No. Okay. Uh, question from Twitter. Scotty Mack, uh, at Scott Mack 92 said, uh, overall thoughts on NHL playoff restructure with so many one seeds falling. Would you change the format? Yes. And it has nothing to do with this year. <laughs> yeah, I would have, I hated the format. I was working for the flyers when the format was created. And I remember sitting in the office that day when they, when we got the internal memo, this was before it was even released publicly and we got the internal memo about it and i just i turned and looked at a couple people that i was working with and i said who at the nhl office looked at this and said oh yeah good idea like it's terrible it was it's a terrible system it's terrible structure it's really really bad and i get it they want oh, we want to do more division rivalries in the playoffs okay fine so then go back to one plays four, two plays three in your division. If that's what you really want, this whole crossing over from one division to another with wild cards and da da da, da it's stupid. Now, if you want to really want to do division rivalries, one versus four, two versus three, that's it. Uh, I prefer just take the eight best teams in the conference and let them play. Even better still, as I would just blow up conferences in general. <laughs> I would just do like they used to back in the late 70s, early 80s. Just pick the 16 best teams by record in the in the league. One place, 16, 2, 15, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter if it's east, west. To me, that's the best way to do it. They'll never do that. So in lieu of that, um, I would say go with um, top eight in the conference. So, yes, I would just change it, go back to what they did for a long time. I think it's the better – that's the better play. The 1-16 to 16 argument is interesting because it's the exact same thing that's being – posited on pretty much any nba national show uh just about the the disparity that exists between the conferences now obviously like they've still stuck to the uh the one through eight methodology um just ranking by by record but it is interesting that two sports that are as different as hockey and basketball are that it feels like there has been a a real push nationally for there to be a a one through 16 seating regardless of conference well so the only I agree with it. I get why people are kind of hesitant to it. And I know that ultimately, like, in the NBA, it won't happen because I think you need 24 of the 30 owners to uh, to vote to make that change. And you're not going to have that happen because there are so many owners in the league who really aren't cons- who aren't really all that concerned with winning or competing as much as they are just collecting a paycheck and continuing to watch the value of their franchise increase. But 
it is interesting that it's being discussed in two different leagues. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's the best, it's the best thing. It's the best format possible. Um, and I think the only sport you can't do it in is baseball. And, and the reasoning is because you have different rules for different leagues in baseball. Okay. Until they unify the, de- the designated hitter rule, you, you couldn't. You could never merge American National League um, because you play under a different set of rules in each league. So you have to keep it that way in baseball. But basketball, hockey, and football, there's no reason to not do it. Like, just. Let's have the best teams play each other. That's it. It doesn't matter what. What's the, the whole con- concept of conferences? Is to me is stupid. Like, what's just everybody play together? <laughs> Pick the best teams. The best teams play the, the, at the in, in the end of the, in the end. That's it. <laughs> just and the reason that it doesn't go, the reason it doesn't happen, is because of money, because of travel. They don't want to, you know, you don't want to have Florida play Vancouver and have to travel back and forth across the country you know, four times in a seven-game series. I get it. So go 2-3-2, two, two, all right? So you only have to go to the city once and maybe once back. That's, That's it. That's rough, though. The 2-3-2, two, two, you know, exactly what happens there. Right? It does, like, but it doesn't matter well, it's, in it's just, it's just, I'm just saying that the, the lower-seeded team ends up being able to steal one of the first two, and then it never goes back to that team's home home. But ice. it doesn't matter in hockey. I mean, how many home games have been won in hockey in this, year, in this year's playoffs? I feel like this, this playoffs feels like a real aberration. No, it's not. It's, it's to have not. to have that many to have that many top seeds fall in the first round. Well, th- yeah, to lose to watch fine, a team but... that was that was almost unprecedented, like Tampa Bay, get swept in the first round by a Columbus yeah. team that barely snuck their way in. Like I, this isn't going to happen every year. It doesn't yeah, well, happen like this every year. No, it doesn't. But hey, it, it it's happened before. In 2010, when the Flyers went to the conference fi- when they went to the Stanley Cup final, who did they beat in the in the conference final? Montreal. What two seeds were they? Seven and eight. <laughs> it happens. It absolutely happens. This is not. It happens in hockey more than anything else. There is no real advantage to playing on, at home, other than you get the last line change. That's that's it. Other than that, the game is so is so even anymore that home ice, home arena, whatever, it doesn't matter. The visiting teams win a lot in hockey, and I know it's something I was talking about with um, with Bob because you know when you look at uh, gambling. So many times they make the home team the favorite in hockey. They, like if you bet underdogs in the playoffs, you're going to win. You're going to win money because the underdog, the the visiting teams win a lot in hockey. I mean, a lot, a lot. So, <laughs> you know, bet the underdog. Even if you lose, even if you end up losing, more, and and you won't. But even if you end up losing more times than you win, because you're betting the underdog, you're getting better odds. You're going to end up ahead. So just bet the underdog if they're a road team. It makes perfect sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, like in hockey, it doesn't matter. So to me, if you go two three two, you're fine. <laughs> you're not. You're not. You're not damaging any possibility. And if you really, really want to worry about it, then start the start the se- series. You know, at the lower seeded team. So to me, I'd be, yeah, one sixteen would be great. I mean, they did it. I mean, it's historically it was done. It was done in the late seventies, early eighties. Flyers played the Islanders in the Stanley Cup Finals in nineteen eighty. How did that happen? Because they did one verse sixteen. That's how that's how it was done, you know. So I, they every sport should do that, except well baseball eventually. But the other three sports, I would be in favor of the NHL, NBA, and NFL all going to get blowing up conferences and just freaking play the playoffs. Rank them one to sixteen or one to twelve in in the NFL, whatever, and just play and see who yet who your last two teams are. I love it. That's the 
It's the most fair way to go. I love it. Uh, another question from Twitter. Uh, insight into the backup goalie position. This is from uh, Benjamin Molesky. Uh, is Talbot going to be the? Is Talbot going to be the backup given his connection to Vino? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I I was under the impression that you know initially that Talbot was going to be the guy, um, and then I was kind of given a th- you know I was kind of told that don't be surprised if Brian Elliott is brought back and Cam Talbot is not. Um, and there was really a lot of talk that way that Elliot would be the guy that they would be more likely to try and keep because he's a better goalie than Cam Talbot. Let's be honest. He's a better goalie than Cam Talbot. It's just that Talbot has a history of remaining healthy, whereas Elliot the last two seasons has had some severe injuries. But the thought process is maybe if Elliot's not playing, you know, more than 25 to 30 games in a season – he could be a little bit more durable and be a better goalie and be a better backup. You know, if case something goes wrong with Carter Hart, you can, you know, you can still win with Brian Elliott. Um, but now that Vino's the coach, again, it, it re- returns back to familiarity. Cam Talbot coached him, before, uh, was coached by him before. Um, I, I don't think that goaltending, it, it, it has as much of a, impact as to who the head coach is and sit there and say oh well he's a he's a vino type guy because goaltending's a different animal than than you know forwards and defensemen skaters are a lot different so when i sit there and say that the, the you know strawman and zuccarello and and hayes are all vino type players it's because they're skaters i don't think that the goalie you know the backup goalie even <laughs> really matters as far as the coach is concerned i think the flyers will will sign the guy that they feel will make them give them the best chance of winning and provide security for um for Carter Hart and it wouldn't surprise me if it's Brian Elliott at this point instead of Cam Talbot. All right. Uh I think that's pretty much it. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to hit on? Are we not going to talk Kate Smith? Uh I was hoping you were going to forget. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean we it's the biggest topic that's going on out there. How can we just? How can we have a Flyers podcast and not address it? Even 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 for a couple minutes. How do you not address it? All right. I know you wrote a, a, a whole thing on it, so I'll let I you. It, no, let let me be clear about something because I had I had some people getting really upset that I I wrote a post for the site. So the the whole Kate Smith thing, right? I'm I'm staying up one night. I'm watching NBA playoffs. And Kyle goes to me, hey, write this thing about like about the Yankees getting rid of, of uh, God Bless America. I'm like, well, it's the Yankees. Why do I care? And I was like, well, she does the thing for the Flyers. I'm like, yeah, but but the Flyers didn't use God Bless America. They didn't do the duet with her and, and Lauren Hart this year. So I was kind of under the impression that the Flyers might have been moving away. Now, you could make the argument that the Flyers had so few meaningful games this year and were never really that close to the postseason uh, that that they would actually need to roll it out. But, you know, at the end of, uh, what was it, the 2017-18 season, I was openly uh, critical of the team for continuing to use it, and and I would talk at, at length about how I was frustrated that, that they were still trying to hold on to this thing from the past, especially knowing that it didn't it didn't net the Flyers' victories, right? It wasn't like they brought it out in, in only the most important games and the Flyers, you know, had a an 80% winning percentage when they did it, right? It felt like, regardless of the situation, it, it was underwhelming. So Kyle says to me, write this thing. I'm like, all right. So I said, like, well, how do you want me to approach it? Because I'm really not comfortable writing things about, like, I'm looking at the lyrics of these two songs. 
Um, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't want to have my name attached to something like this because, like, I, I just fundamentally can't get behind the concept of even writing something about race like this, especially because it was from the 30s. And so he said, well, just write it like the way that it's it's being reported. So I did. Like, I, I just put it together. I put it up. And I said what the Daily News reporter had put out. And then I said, like, you know, look, there's no place for, you know, racist comments like this. And it remains to be seen if the Flyers are going to do anything. And I did mention the fact that the Flyers hadn't used Kate Smith's rendition of God Bless America in the uh, 2018-19 season. And then from that, I ended up getting called a social justice warrior. I was told that I was everything that was wrong with the country. I was told that I'm the reason that Trump got elected, yada, yada, yada. And I'm just sitting here like, yo, I, I don't really have much of an opinion. And then there were people who, you know, I saw there was somebody in the comment section who said, well, you know, you have to take into account that one of the songs that, that she's being uh, crushed on is one that was also sung by an African-American uh, artist back in the 30s, and that it was meant to be satire. And so it, it kind of created the, uh, the, the typical issue that we have in this country anytime that, that anything is brought up when someone is outraged or there's something from another time period that people are upset with. And, you know, for better or worse, my role that day was just to kind of put out that that was what the news had been. And the next day, I wrote a post about how the Flyers had covered up uh, Kate Smith's statue. Uh, and that, you know, that was, the, that was the update at that moment. Well, then on Easter Sunday, the team puts out a, a second statement that says that they had removed Kate Smith's statue. Not only that they had covered it up and taken it out of the, the, um, the song out of their library, but that they had actually removed the statue from, uh, from the, the walk on the way um, from Xfinity Live. And it, it felt like the, the flames of this had been stoked uh, quite a bit in the, in the days that had led up to that. And it felt like the, uh, the reaction to it on social media was, you know, all over the place. People applauding the Flyers and the Yankees for removing this allegedly racist woman's lyrics, while other people were, you know, taking the opposite side of it of, like, how do you go about um, attacking somebody for what they, they did in the 1930s? And also pointing out again that at least one of the songs had been satirical in nature, or at least that was the interpretation. I think the the best way to break this whole thing down was uh, what Tim did for the site. So go over to crossingbrad.com and check out what, what he wrote. But it was a very good um, job of, of kind of addressing both sides of this. I, I've got to say that if, if nothing else, I'm usually one when somebody is, is being taken to task, especially somebody who's, who's dead. When you take them to task on the things that they did or didn't do or what their intention was, um, I'm usually one to, to say, like, let's let's pause for a second and, and actually take the full context into play. In this case, I didn't because I was on a time constraint and it was just kind of something where I was told, like, go write this the way that it was reported. So I did I kind of regret it a little bit because I usually like to take more pride in like doing a deep dive. But I think what Tim did by by kind of addressing both sides of the argument I think was was very well thought out, and it was better than I would have probably put it anyway. Um, I'm not surprised that the Flyers, you know, publicly came out and said that they were going to take the song out of their library. Again, they didn't use it at all this year. I have to think that they might have been considering moving away from the tradition of, of doing the duet with her and Lauren Hart, which I always thought was a little bit uh, clunky and, and awkward in, in the first place. I I mean, I, I guess in in a sense, I applaud them for being proactive insofar as like they released two statements and they decided to make a decision as an organization to first cover the statue and then to remove it. But on the other hand, I can also understand why people are upset with it 
Because if we are to believe that the lyrics that she sang and the songs that she sang were meant to be satirical in nature, and you take into account the millions and millions of dollars that she raised uh, in fighting the Nazis by doing, um, you know, what were essentially like, I, I guess, televised concerts that, that were used as a fundraising effort for the war, I'm not so sure that you can say that she was, you know, the the second, like, was like the Antichrist, like a lot of people were trying to portray her as. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the Yankees pulling the song. I feel like it was a very complicated issue. I got taken to task for it, and you know, I, I know that a lot of people have been. I, I'm, I'm just kind of torn, to be honest. I don't know what your thoughts were, what your thoughts were for the Flyers, but that, that was a, a thing that I wanted to make sure I said. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you said what you did. I'm a little, I was a little surprised by your response. I'm a little surprised. I got to be honest. I, I thought that. Uh, I thought you were going to be a little bit more, you know, um, yeah, this they did the right thing. We have no, there's no place in the world for this, blah, 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 blah. And I, I really thought that's what you were going to do. Um, now? Yeah, I did. Well, because really the, did. the post that I wrote, it, it was much more of there is no place for this, right? And yeah. then you have time to reflect. And this is part of, the, this is why I say, like, there, this is part of the problem. And I guess, you know, in some way, people were saying that I was like, um, continuing to perpetuate this like this awful way that we do things, um, and I think Tim put it as um, think fire aim or shoot fire aim. That doesn't make ready sense. Fu- ready, ready fire. Yeah, aim. ready fire aim. Um, but like on on the surface, the the lyrics that exist, there is no place for it, right? And and I will stand by that. There is no place for it at all. Mm-hmm. When you take into account the the possible context of it being satire. Then you end up in a, a lot more of a, a murky kind of water, and, and well, that's, okay, let me, and that's where, where then I'm let me at let me it. let me say this then. I, it, and I, look, I don't want to sit here and, and come off as, you know, white Mister White Privilege because that's not what I'm trying to do. I, I look, there's no, there's no place for, for race, you know, race language, in society today. There hasn't been for a long time. Okay, really hasn't. And so I, I don't necessarily disagree with the notion of we should probably stop playing this song um, because it is insensitive to certain people. And, you know, I can't sit here and tell you how African-Americans feel about hearing stories like this from the 1930s. I mean, you know, I I can't even begin to judge that. I I wouldn't even try to. But I will say that this, there does need to be some historical context anytime we have a situation like this arise in society. And I think Tim handled it really well. I'll tell you another person who, who really put out a fantastic version of the story and that's Bill Meltzer, our friend from Press Row, on the website Hockey Buzz. Um, and I, I urge everyone to search Bill Meltzer on Kate Smith History and Context because that's what it's titled. It, it very well could be the best piece of writing, and I love Bill's writing, but it's the, maybe the best piece of writing Bill's ever written, okay? Um, and and the, the thing that I wanted to point out, when you say, well, it could be satire, and that makes it murky. The reason it doesn't make it murky, Russ, is this is that there was not in the 1930s a, um, a you know a, a real push for civil rights like we had in 30 years later and we still even have today um, so absent of the of the um, advocacy to 
you know, for the African American community, uh, uh, you know, taking place back then. What was done to put it into the public conscious is satire. It was done all over the place. It was done in the Three Stooges. You know, it was it was done in many other forms of entertainment that where, you know, it was portrayed a certain way over the top to really say to to people, this is ridiculous that we have to do this. I mean, that was that was kind of how it was done then. So whether Kate Smith was part of the satire or not, I I can't say, but neither can she because she's been dead for 30 years. So to sit there and to be indignant about this woman being racist, that's, that's what bothers me. Because, yeah, the, the, the lyrics of the song are bad. Totally bad. And I, they, we shouldn't even really discuss them. They shouldn't even be rewritten. But it, the historical context has to be taken into consideration not to say that oh she was a, she was from the you know the songstress from the south and it was in the Jim Crow South where you know uh, African Americans were not considered equals back then it was only fifty years after the end of the Civil War sixty years after the end of the Civil War I get it right all that stuff okay that's all well and good but we don't know what her philosophy was we do I do know that on her TV show she was the first person to have Josephine Baker perform when no other network would touch her and she was you know a uh, a black performer um and and kate smith had her on her show so does that mean you know kate just did it to just to do it or did was kate really a supporter of uh equal rights who who knows i i can't tell you i have no idea um but to sit here and just be indignant that she's racist and we need to remove her statue and we need to never play her song again because she sang these two songs 80-some years ago, I think that's that's pushing it a little bit too far, societally. Societally. If you want to quietly just, we're not going to play the song anymore, that's fine. I, again, they didn't do it this year. I, we already know that this organization under Dave Scott is no is trying to separate itself from the old school flyers stuff, right? So that's probably why it was not done in 2018, 19 at all. I could think of a couple of times when they could have done it. You know, there were a couple of games where they were, you know, hey, three points out of a playoff spot playing um, Pittsburgh or Columbus or whoever. And, you know, Mont- oh, it was the Montreal game. That's the one. They were chasing Montreal at the time and they lost the game. Um, like that, that game maybe called for it and they didn't do it. Um, so they could have done it and they didn't. So they, I think that they were already in the process of separating themselves from that history in that regard. But to make a big deal out of it, because we have these social justice warriors today who don't have perspective, who don't know anything. I guess the question is this, Russ. If, if, if last week, before this story came out, okay, we went around and asked 500 people as a good sample in, in, this, in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia area, of varying ages. We could have asked 75-year-old people. We could have asked 18-year-old people. We could ask anybody. What songs do you know that Kate Smith sang? I guarantee you not one person would have known these songs. Not one person would have known that they existed. And they've been available in the public domain on the internet for many years now. And not one person would have told you, oh, yeah, she's, oh, yeah, did you know she sang these songs? No one would have. So... The fact is, this is no different than when people go and dig up 
old tweets from some kid who's getting ready to get drafted and his and then the day before he gets drafted they release these tweets and it hurts his draft stock you know or it's it's no different than um uh what's the name not being able to host the uh the oscars this year um kevin hart because of some old tweets that he had right it's the same concept and and there's someone who you know is an African American, and because of tweets that he made, he had to recuse himself from you know hosting the Oscars because it was ridiculous. Because people hold on to this stuff and wait for just the opportune moment. Not to say that this was some you know well planned timing, you know, to release this, but it's 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 of the same vein, and that that's where we have a real problem in society. So did the Flyers handle this well? No. Could they, could they have, you know, quietly just stopped playing the song and just left well enough alone without creating outrage? Yeah. But by responding the way that they did, by being, uh, by acting and totally, you know, affronted by this news that these songs that are 80 some years old suddenly were unearthed <laughs> as if no one knew that they existed prior to a week ago. Okay. Um, that then, then they now have to make a statement and they now have to cover the statue so that nobody can see it until they can get it removed. And then on Easter Sunday, remove the statue because that's, it's a slow news day. So let's do it that day. So nobody really pays attention and you're going to create outrage. You're not only going to create outrage, you're going to create a divisive environment between the people, between two extreme sides. When re- the reality is where you and I lie and Tim Riley on Crossing Broad and Bill Meltzer on Hockey Buzz and a lot of others, we reside in the middle where it's like, hey, we can see both sides. We understand, but let's really put some context into this and, and figure it out. And, and the Flyers didn't do that. They reacted because they were panicking about, oh, we can't have a bad public pers- uh, perception. And, and in all honesty, by panicking and reacting the way they did, I think they made... F- a, uh, made for a worse public perception than it would have been if they took a more measured approach and and you know came out with something that said you know what in light of what we found out even though these songs were are from a different time and a different generation we know that they don't they should not exist today um, it's unfortunate that they were sung when they were um, but we understand it was a different era as such we're not going to to do the Lauren Hart Kate Smith duet any longer. But just leave it at that. You leave the statue. Just let it be. Right? It's a part of your history. It's a part of what happened. Okay? We have founding fathers who were wealthy landowners and slave owners. Okay? They're on our dollar bills and our, and our you know, all our currency. You know, these, these Yankees and the Flyers have no problem taking that, right, from their patrons. No problem with that representation of, of ancient times in America. If they take that, we're too hypocritical at times, man. We just really are. And I, I just think that it has to fall somewhere in the middle. We have to be able to look at it and say, yeah, this is wrong. This was wrong. But this came at a time when people just didn't know any better. And that's, it doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it right. It, but we have to understand that that's, what, that's when that was. And thank God we don't live in 1931 anymore. Thank God we live in 2019 where we can identify that this is a bad thing. But that doesn't mean that we need to just make pretend that our history doesn't exist. Because once you do that, you're doomed to repeat it. And I think that that's uh, – we're in da- – and a lot of times we're in danger of doing that. So that's it. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. No, I think it's interesting. And, and you know, it was a conversation, of course, that came up at, at Easter 
uh, around the dinner table. And, um, you know, one of the questions, one of the things that, that I think a lot of people often meet when this kind of thing comes up is, well, you know, are, are you going to go back and retroactively now remove the, the statues of the founding fathers, kind of like what you were saying? And I will say, over, over the summer, I went to Monticello, and it, it was really interesting because, you, I, I don't know, I thought going into it that Monticello would kind of be a little bit more favorable to Jefferson and to to his very troubled past in in owning slaves, right? But the the exhibits as they were set up, the tours as they were given, presented a very flawed man who had written in his diary many times that he was conflicted because it was customary to own slaves, but he also realized that it was an inhumane thing to do. And while he would acknowledge that, he continued to own slaves, right? And so I I, I feel like there we're just we're in a in a spot where the conversation puts people in in such a bad spot where you're forced to almost in a in a sense take a side on something that that you might not want to find yourself taking a a side on like will kane tried to um to take i guess the the opposing side to to what would be the the fire and brimstone kind of just like burn everything like burn the kate smith statue and he got shouted down on uh, on first take by Stephen A. Smith and and to some extent by Max Kellerman. I feel like no matter how you go about this, it's hard to have a conversation with people that that refuse to acknowledge that there could be another way to look at a situation that isn't fire and brimstone and 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 scorched earth. And I think that we've continued to find ourselves in these situations where, as you kind of said from the start, we don't know what it's like to be an African-American in the United States. We don't know what it's like to be a Hispanic person in the United States. We don't know what it's like to be an Asian-American in the United States or to be from American Samoa. I was just listening to Radio Lab as they talked about um, the fact that that people from American Samoa aren't considered to be U.S. citizens, yet they... Um, it, 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 never mind. That, that would take us down a, a very different path. But, like, we don't know what it's like other than to be two white guys in the United States, right? And for us to try to have a what we would consider to be an educated or nuanced opinion on it there will inevitably be people who will shout us down on both sides of it that we cannot know what it's like so we cannot have an opinion and others who would say why would you not try to have an opinion you're rolling over in an argument and yeah. i and i think that it's it's a spot where we acknowledge what like who we are and the fact that like we can approach this and say that fundamentally we think that the flyers by the way they they went about addressing this issue might have erred in their judgment. Yeah. And and I think that's as far as as you and I necessarily need to take it. Yeah. Now, no, I, 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 we we have said the lyrics of these songs are are abhorrent. Yeah. They they cannot exist. They should not have existed at any point. And it's it's uh it's just like a it's an awful it's an awful stain on on, you know, American history, really, but um, you know, I think the way that you put it, the way that the Flyers reacted to it is is fair. And, you know, for a team that, again, it looked like they were getting away from from doing the, uh, the Kate Smith duet altogether. If they had come out and said that they were investigating the matter and they were they were looking to to ascertain what the historical context of the the, the song lyrics were, I think people would have, you know, some would have been outraged, but some would have maybe applauded them for being level headed and not reactionary. Yeah. And by not only releasing one statement, 
and not only by covering up the statue, but then by releasing a second statement and also removing the statue on Easter Sunday, they opened themselves up for, you know, a, a lot of criticism. I said at the end of my first post that it, it clearly was a PR nightmare that they did not expect to have to find themselves in on the same day that, that they introduced Elaine Vino as the coach of the team. And yet, here we were, you know, a few days later, talking about the PR disaster that they kind of got themselves into. And, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen going what will happen going forward. But we know that the statue has gone. It's not going to get put back up. At least I, I assume it's not going to get put back up. No, because there's no that's, way it gets put back that's up. That's going to, it's, you know, even if, let's say that best case scenario, uh, Kate Smith's name was cleared. She was vindicated, I guess. Uh, you know, the the appropriate research was put in and it was deemed that, you know, these lyrics were meant as satire and they found the, the I don't know, what a diary, the, the, the like some un, unearthed clip of her saying that these things were satirical and that they were meant to raise awareness, yada, yada, yada. There is no other way that the, the Flyers can go back on this. They have made a decision to remove a part of their history, to your point. And whether you agree with it or not, it is something that they did. They are now more or less whitewashing that part of their history. And I, I think <laughs> I didn't mean, want to choose a different phrase. Well, I, don't, I don't know. What's another way? They're, they're like clearing it. I, I know because I said white, but like they're, they're clearing out a part of their history for better or worse. Some will agree with it. Some will disagree. And I've certainly seen both sides of, uh, of the argument on my, uh, my Twitter feed and on Facebook. So yeah, yeah. I, I just want to. I just want to. I don't want to belabor this. We've already talked long enough about it. But I, I just want to read one paragraph from Bill's uh, piece. Um, he says, uh, in terms of racial and ethnic depictions and other forms of pop culture, a significant amount of material in vintage Warner Brothers and Disney cartoons, including portions of Fantasia or the Three Little Pig series with the Big Bad Wolf disguised as a Jewish or Italian peddler, would be considered highly offensive in current society. In fact, in preserving and re-releasing vintage material, Warner Brothers placed a disclaimer before their presentation that, that's, that read, The cartoons you are about to see are products of their time. They may depict some of the racial and ethnic prejudices that were commonplace in American society. These depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. While the following does not represent Warner Brothers' view of today's society, these cartoons are being presented as they were originally created because to do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. That's how you handle it. That's really well said. That's how you handle it. All right, so uh, if you're listening to the show, if you made it this far, uh, maybe you're, you're screaming at your speakers or your headphones or your phone or wherever you listen to Snow the Goalie, the Only Flyers podcast. But continue the conversation with us. Let us know what you think. Um, follow us over on Twitter, at Anson Philly, at Joy on Broad. As always, the uh, the links to our profiles are in this description. And um, I don't know, I'll be interested to see what, what people say. But I, I will say that I think 80% of the reaction that, that I think came to the site and that I've seen in responses on Twitter have been um, opposed to what the Flyers ended up doing rather than uh in favor of yeah and and it's and it, it, it it's unfortunate because i think it's 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 drawing a, a racial line that it shouldn't be drawing well i i think that the the it's the negative in what the flyers did is not that they chose to no longer play the the kate smith clip but rather how they handled this in such a 
disheveled manner. Okay, that's what the, that to me is why it's it was poorly done. Not that they because they made a decision and they, and that's fine. The decision in and of itself to not play the song anymore is fine. It's fine. It wouldn't have been the end of the world. No I'm one would have noticed otherwise. I aside from yeah. the aside from the the you know scandal whatever you want to call it. I'm glad they got rid of it. It's it, it had no place. It was awkward. It was strange, and it didn't work. It was it was ineffective in bringing the team good luck. So banish it. I don't care. Get rid of it. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad. If you had told me at this time last year that the Flyers were going to get rid of the uh, the awkward duet between Kate Smith and Lauren Hart, I would have applauded the team. And ultimately, they got rid of it this year, at least. And now it's certainly gone for good. But like, good. Get rid of things that don't work. If this is for any team. Get rid of traditions that don't work. If you're overly superstitious and you can take, like, I can't think of anything right now off the top of my head. Uh, like, aside from, like, having Sylvester Stallone come back to, like, uh, you know, start the Eagles season. Like, I'm superstitious. Please don't ever bring him back. That, that The game that he came out that opened the link that they got smoked by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Like, I don't need that again. So Sly Stallone is never allowed back in the link. All right, fine. Other than that, like, if you have any kind of, of superstitions as a team and, and you continue to, like, go back to yesteryear in the hope that it's going to bring the team luck, just, like, get rid of it. I, I I don't know. The only other thing I can think of is like the Sixers bring back Allen Iverson all the time. Allen Iverson to me represents what mediocrity was in the city. We can get into this. We cannot get into this. But like <laughs> ultimately, like teams didn't win with Allen Iverson. They got to the final. All right. Like Allen Iverson is what Russell Westbrook is to the Oklahoma City Thunder now. He's a guy that like was a very good player, was an all star, yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, like they didn't win. You can blame it on a whole bunch of things. But like I don't need to continue to go back to the past. In a, in a hope that it's going to rejuvenate or, or lead to success in the future. Just get rid of bad traditions. Get rid of things that don't work and try new things. Create new traditions. Forge new traditions for the future. That's where I'm at. So you don't want the Phillies to have high hopes after every win? High hopes is different. Harry Callis is, a, is an absolute gem. He's a historical gem. Did he allegedly do some pretty bad things that caused a rift between himself and Chris Wheeler? Yes. But Harry, Harry Callis is a saint in this city. Now... <laughs> Wouldn't that be the worst? Like that's the next thing they they yeah, find right? like a recording of Harry well, Callis like using racist language and then yeah, we get high hopes. Right? I, I mean, I, look, but here's what I'll say. Here's and this is not this is this is not like this is in public, but you know there was a book that came out um, after Harry's death uh, about his life and times as a broadcaster, and you know Harry Harry when he was on the road. He had, you know, varying relationships with women. He was, he, he was like, drank he was a lot. Tiger. He was Tiger Woods. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, could could someone then look at that and say, oh, Harry Callis was a misogynist. Sure. We should, we should, not, we should not have anything Harry Callis related. And so then the Phillies have to respond and no longer play high hopes at the end of the game. Like, that could happen. Social it, Justice Warrior it, it could it do could. that, right? I, I guess it could. I think there's a, a fundamental difference between the way that the nation reacts to adultery sure. versus sure. How, it, how it responds to racism. I agree. And, I agree. I think that's ultimately the, the other line. This is the, the only thing that I, I guess I'll leave people with. Um, and, and, well, I don't know. I don't want to, like, draw the, the lines necessarily. But, like... If you think about what the Flyers fan base looks like and traditionally who the Flyers uh, fans are and you take this kind of context and, and and why I said like it's it's been 80-20 against what the Flyers have done and you compare it to like what would have happened with a, a let's say like a wider demographic of people like if, if we had gone with like what the Sixers fan base looks like or what the Phillies fan base looks like or what the Eagles fan base looks like. I wonder what the reaction would have been. I wonder if we would have been more 50-50. I wonder if it would have been 80-20 in the opposite direction. I have thoughts on it, 
but it's essentially going into a hypothetical that we don't necessarily have to. But I, I, I do think that it is going to be interesting to see because this thing isn't over. Like, I think the story is going to continue for the next few weeks and things will come out. Uh, I, I'm assuming there are going to be more pieces published. There are going to be more thoughts. There are going to be more debate shows that are going to use this as a segment. And ultimately, if if the end result of this is to further dis- the discussion uh, in a positive and constructive way, then it ends up being a good thing. But um, I don't know. I guess we'll see where it goes. Yep. I agree. All right. So uh, this is a long episode. And uh, yes, well, I, I guess it's a good thing. We had a couple of people who were upset that we didn't put out a show the week that Elaine Vigneault was hired. And, and that's my fault. So here we are. Um, anyway, uh, a, a big, big week and a half or so in uh, in Flyers country. So we will be back. I don't know what next week, the week after. Um, the one thing I, I guess I'll kind of push people to do is uh, while Anthony and I figure out what the schedule is going to be for the next few shows. Um, assuming that there is no more big Flyers news, which there really can't be during the postseason, I would assume. Um, make sure you go check out Crossed Up, which Anthony hosts with uh, with Bob Wankel. You can find on Twitter at BW Crossing Broad, as they've been giving the best Phillies coverage. Um, I'm still, believe it or not, working to figure out if there are any other Phillies podcasts out there. To my knowledge, Crossed Up is the only Phillies podcast. I can't give it the official moniker yet. I'm still looking into it. Um, of course, Crossing Broadcast did not come out last week, and I don't think it's going to come out this week. And it's not because we don't care. It's because there was some news in the Kincaid household, but I don't think he's gone public with it yet, so I'm not going to uh, make that well, you announcement. Know, uh, well, you, you, know, you know, Russ, you could what? always reach out reach out to your, your other colleagues and I say, could. hey, Anthony, Bob, you guys want to jump in for Kevin while he's got his thing that he's dealing with and, eh. and you know, eh. give us another... I'm, you know, I'll talk to not, you enough. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly can talk about other things besides hockey and baseball. Can you? Eh, can you? Yeah, a little bit. All right, I'll consider it. Uh, so <laughs> go check out Crossing Broadcast. Perhaps there will be a uh, an alternative uh, uh, scheduling of it this week. Maybe Anthony will be on there. Maybe Bob will be on there. Could Phil be on there? Who knows? Could Tim? Could Investor Jeff be on? Who knows? I guess we'll find out. Um, uh, we'll, we should have an episode going out this week because the Sixers are about to uh, finish off their series with the Brooklyn Nets. And uh, human thumb wearing a headband, Jared Dudley. So we're going to have to uh, do something about that. Of course, uh, it's always soccer in Philadelphia. Kevin did get to put out one final episode. I think he had the Dalai Lama of soccer on uh, to the uh, last episode. It was very interesting. Oh, man. We're getting the clock two, again? All right. We're going to have to clock, finish with this. Two Hold clocks. So, uh, so really quick. Uh, it's always soccer in Philadelphia. Dropped a new episode. And, of course, Crossing Broad FC. Phil Kydell and I will be back again this week recapping and uh, previewing the uh, the semifinals of the UEFA Champions League and talking about the domestic leagues. We've got Manchester City, Liverpool, a lot of stuff happening at the top of the EPL table. By the way, Sean Long uh, set the record today with the fastest goal in English Premier League history. He scored seven seconds into his game. So uh, take that. That's a little bit of, uh, of knowledge for you there, Anthony, about your favorite sport, soccer. In the meantime, go follow us on Twitter at AntSanPhilly, at JoyOnBroad. We'll be back soon with another episode of Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the People's Podcast, the Players Podcast, the Prognosticators Podcast, the Pedialyte Podcast, the Pampers Podcast, the Presidential Podcast, the Perennial Podcast, and ultimately, the only Flyers podcast.